Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome to the SASPOD three guests who will introduce themselves momentarily. We are going to talk about the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, and we will make this a two-part podcast. So part one, if you're listening to that, part two will drop in about one to two weeks. And if you are starting with part two, but have not heard part one, uh, please go back to our webpage and listen to that, uh, either before or after listening to part two. In part one, we will try to provide an overview of how we got to where we are today. And then in part two, we're gonna try and project into the future uh, and uh, figure out what are some of the options available to make sense uh, of the troop withdrawal and its, um, its ramifications. Please introduce yourselves. My name is Robert Cruz. I teach in the history department at Stanford. Hi, I'm Mishkan Masumi. I recently graduated from Stanford from the Department of History, and I will soon be a postdoctoral uh, fellow in the college program also at Stanford. Hi, I'm Sabo Nasseri, and I am a PhD student. I'm in my sixth year, and I work on the Afghan left. I want to move us into the present and then into the future. Was this, was this ever a winnable war? And by winnable, I guess, I don't even know what I mean. What do I mean? Uh, was, it ever, was it ever going to do what it was meant to do? Bob, let's start with you. I mean, as you put it, I mean, it's, it's extremely, I guess one has to calibrate one's response to the war aims. I mean, the war aims were to destroy the Taliban movement and eliminate Al-Qaeda. And if we look at it, the beginning of 2002, both goals appeared to have been met, right? Um, but it was very soon clear, you know, that, that both goals, you know, that, that that initial period was kind of a mirage and that um, Al-Qaeda continued to exist as a global movement. Yeah. Um, it was always beyond the borders of Afghanistan. So that, again, the territorial kind of myopia was readily apparent. Um, and then the Taliban themselves, very importantly, you know, didn't give up. Um, some key leaders came forward and actually wanted what to use the term of the moment they wanted to reconcile with the new american backed government that was in formation but crucially um it's now i think broadly recognized not by everyone but i think there's a broad consensus that there was a window of opportunity that was missed in fall 2001 and perhaps early 2002 when some of these early taliban figures may have been incorporated into the new government in some capacity again, not made the head of state, but in some way that may have divided the movement, that might have defanged it, that might have lent the new government more legitimacy among communities where the Taliban did have some standing. And instead, 
when they answered calls of, or actually pledges of amnesty offered by Hamid Karzai, the first incoming head of state, when Taliban leaders answered these calls for amnesty, um, many were sent directly to American prison camps and then ultimately to Guantanamo. So that, that moment of betrayal was crucial because it was a, a time when the movement could have become something else. It could have been, uh, Afghan politics could have been open to a degree and they could have been brought into the fold. Um, and then there were various moments for peace at, at later times when the Taliban were in a position um, that made, you know, they were making noises about some kind of negotiation to, to forge some kind of peace agreement. At this stage, though, with the U.S., with the kind of unilateral withdrawal, with the Taliban being, as of I think this morning, in control of more districts than they have held since 2001, um, they're at a strong point. And so now, you know, most observers who know the scene far better than I acknowledge that the Taliban are not keen on negotiations right now. They recognize they are fighting a position of strength. Yeah. They are sending out assassins to decimate what we might call Afghan civil society. They are targeting Hazaras. They are, you know, targeting journalists. They're targeting intellectuals. They're targeting professors in a way that is, I think, paralyzing urban educated society who are really at the, at the vanguard of an alternative political formation, which many call the Republic, you know, in, in a kind of aspirational description of the current government. Um, but now Afghans find themselves, um, you know, terrified about future prospects for security when the current government isn't capable of providing security. The Americans are leaving and the Taliban are are steamrolling through district after district and, and often negotiating um, the transfer of power to them uh, without firing a shot. So it, it does have shades of 1995, 1996, when the Taliban crept from their southern home in, in Kandahar to the west and then to the capital city of Kabul. So what I'm what I'm hearing you say is um, there were moments of success in terms of the aims of the original war, um, but those right. those moments have gone, and now it's kind of worse than ever. Saba, what's your take on this? Was there ever? Do you think if the was there ever uh, was there ever any hope that this could work work out for Afghanistan? Um, I don't think so. I, I think the invasion wasn't for Afghans or Afghanistan. Yeah. It only was an afterthought. I think the idea of women's rights, whatever that may mean, because that's a complicated question, as we know in our own American society. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, to just add to Bob's, um, I was in Russia uh, two, about two years ago, and uh, when they were when they initially left Afghanistan, um, there are money articles that, uh, you know, in uh, TV shows arguing that, you know, this was a defeat, that this um, this was a mistake. They were one of the biggest mistakes that the Soviet Union made and, and all of that stuff. But today, um, there's a counter to that, you know, and, and that is just from the perspective of the of certain Russian elites. And that is that they have developed, they developed during the war, um, certain weapons that they would have not developed had it not been for that war. Uh, right, so so I wonder too in the US for even for Americans, let alone the Afghans, uh, it is a win for some people um, from the American Afghan translator who has gone to Afghanistan translated in the past 10 years and has made a million 
mm-hmm. uh, when other boys working at uh, you know doing some menial job uh, just because they need a Afghan language one or two of the Afghan languages to some degree to their military contractors uh, who would have made billions right uh, you know and use weapons in, in a kind of colonial outpost that they would have not done otherwise like the mother of all bombs that had happened um, so I, I think, the question of winnable for whom, I don't think the regular American won anything out of it. Um, you know, if we read someone like Andrew Bakovich, I think he has, he makes some very good points about what's happening in the Middle East and how since the, um, since Nixon did away with the draft, that the U.S. military has essentially become a private mercenary army uh, that weapons manufacturers can use to, to expand uh, you know, their reach, uh, their wealth, and then they're, they have some elites, some political elites uh, behind them. And there are very few elites that spoke against wars, even against the Iraq war. Um, we can mention maybe three politicians who spoke against it. Um, so I, I think the question of winnable for me would be for whom, uh, not for the American people, not for the Afghans, but maybe for certain elites. Yeah, okay, thank you. That's, uh, that's very clear. Mejigan, was there ever a time that um, the U.S. could have withdrawn and you might have felt like this this has been worth it or at least not unworth it? You know, that's a really complicated and complex question. And I... Um, I'm sorry, I pride myself on asking those, but I think uh, particularly with the topic at hand, I don't know that there are other questions. Sure. No, absolutely. I was just going to say that I get asked uh, a lot about how I feel about the current U.S. pool, uh, the troop pullout. Um, And I think it's really, you know, uh, uh, like a good historian to historicize the events that um, Mm -hmm. have led up um, to the U.S. uh, troop pullout. It was in February of 2020 that the Trump administration signed a peace agreement with the Taliban. And this was an agreement that the Afghan government was essentially left out of. Mm. You know? And I think for many people that I speak to um, on the ground in Afghanistan in various places, I mean, this action basically translated as the US's legitimization of a terrorist organization and undermined the sovereignty of the Afghan state. Mm. Um, and again, uh, not all Afghans think this way, but for many, um, you know, we were speaking before of um, the Taliban and sort of um, some of the um, stereotypes we have about the Taliban or uh, the inaccuracies we may have about this group. But unfortunately, I think it still remains that uh, under their leadership, there was more uh, that Afghans unfortunately lost than gained. Um, And, you know, I, I say these words as someone who has to read every single day um, or get informed every single day about uh, another young, bright person inside Afghanistan dying because violence won't stop, because there is, you know, these attacks and now sticky bombs on cars that have become um, the the popular mode of uh, uh, imparting violence on the Afghan landscape. Um, and, and someone else dies. So it's, it's painful, not only for me, but for Afghans everywhere inside and outside of the country to, uh, to reconcile with that 
reality and the level of violence uh, that in, that is increasing on a daily basis. So anyway, just go just to go back to this this peace agreement with the Taliban. You know that that peace agreement stated that the Taliban would cut all ties with Al Qaeda and ISIS and Daesh, which seems questionable as to whether or not they they've actually done that. Um, it also stated that they would not allow any of their members to use Afghan soil to threaten the security of America or its allies. Um, the, the agreement also stated that um, they would significantly reduce violence in Afghanistan. And we know this didn't happen. And if you, you look at UNAMA's latest report on the protection of civilians in armed conflict, those numbers will tell you um, I mean, very uh, clearly that, that violence has not been reduced. Um, in the peace agreement, should the, should the Taliban agree to those conditions, um, the US would you know, draw down their troops from 13,000 to 8,600 within 135 days of signing the agreement with the Taliban. Um, they did do that. They also indicated that the U.S. would uh, work with the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners in exchange for 1,000 government prisoners um, prior to the intra-Afghan dialogue um, so that both parties could show good faith prior to peace negotiations. So this also occurred. But what happened uh, is much chaos when the release of those prisoners happened um, is basically when, unfortunately, the level of violence in the country increased. Mm. Um, you know, the, the intra-Afghan dialogues, I get asked a lot about what that even is. Um, so in this U.S.-Taliban agreement, which the Afghan government was originally uh, not a part of, um, after the release of the prisoners from both sides, the, they, they said that the intra-Afghan dialogues could begin. And these dialogues were basically um, a way to facilitate peace talks. Um, they were scheduled originally, I think, to begin in March of 2020. They were, of course, delayed to September 2020 um, for many was different reasons. Because of COVID or, of course, because delays happen? Absolutely. COVID was a big delay for it, yeah. but also disputed presidential election results. Right. Um, the Afghan government was very angry about this prisoner release that was negotiated in this agreement, but between the US and the Taliban, but that the Afghan government itself never agreed to. Um, there was disputes over um, the delegation representing the government during these peace talks. Um, and for the United States, they really, you know, they envisioned that the intra-Afghan dialogue would, you know, produce conversations between the Afghan government's delegation and the Taliban on a path towards peace. Um, and that upon some sort of successful uh, peace agreement, there would be a new government. Um, and what that meant is that there would be an interim government created composed of the Taliban, I think technocrats of the Afghan government, opposition par uh, parties and prominent Mujahideen leaders. But of course the 
the current Afghan uh, government, the Ghani administration was totally against the creation of any sort of interim government. Um, and then later what happens, you know, and I think it was in March of just this year, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, wrote a letter to Ghani and kind of, I mean, it was, um, it was a sort of an urgent letter to bring peace to Afghanistan. And it's, it's interesting that this is happening all the while that violence is increasing. It's hard to say who exactly is behind the violence, despite the fact that it's either the Taliban or ISIS or these other shadow figures, uh, you know, claiming um, uh, claiming that they're 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 responsible for that violence. I think it's there's a lot more smoke and mirrors and things that are probably um, not as black and white as we'd like them to as we like to believe that they are in all of this um, in terms of the the violence being inflicted um, uh, on this country and. Uh, these people. Um, and, you know, that letter that uh, the, the U.S. Secretary of State wrote to President Ghani, I think, was viewed by some, at least, as sort of a diplomatic victory to the Taliban um, mm-hmm. by basically, you know, suggesting, urging, um, fill in the adjective or verb that you'd like to use um, uh, to the Afghan government to make concessions based on an American timetable for the troop pullout. Um, so Biden's um, so Biden's plan on troop withdrawal builds upon the peace agreement that the Trump administration signed with the Taliban. Is right. that- so was there ever a possibility, um, and Bob, maybe you can speak to this, of when Biden came in, came in for the Biden administration just to say we're not doing it, or what, was that not an option for him? John, you want to you tackle that? I mean, you, sure. sure. Yeah, go for it. So the Biden administration, um, what they did is that they pushed for another conference. Let's have another peace talk in Turkey this time with the UN's involvement um, in order to finalize um, the peace deal between the Taliban and the Afghan government because, you know, there's all these negotiations occurring throughout the year between 2020 and 2020. And like literally now there's all these negotiations occurring, violence is increasing, but there's no settlement yet. And so this conference in Turkey was supposed to include the Taliban, Afghan government delegates, um, and and then also delegates from the United States, uh, Russia, China, Iran, and I think even Pakistan, they're all scheduled to be at this conference. But over the the past six months, violence has increased. And we keep getting news of these assassinations, as I mentioned before, you know, very influential and prominent Afghans, young people, you know, lots of bright, educated youth, including journalists and human rights activists and doctors and even people with, you know, uh, soldiers themselves who, I mean, that's a different topic that we can talk about a little bit more, um, the Afghan army, but 
Um, the point here is that the killings escalated from last September until now. And last September is when the peace talks began between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And I think in just in February of 2021, the UN accounted for 700 murders and 540 wounded in targeted attacks in 2020. Um, and so uh, uh, I'm going off on a tangent, but um, Lolita, to answer your question, I think the Biden administration continued to try these, um, these talks and negotiations to reach at a settlement. And, the, and the, the, the outcome of that was Biden announcing that the troops will not withdraw from Afghanistan on May 1st to 2020. It's now been delayed mm -hmm. to September 11th, 2021, which ironically marks the 20th anniversary, which will ironically mark the 20th anniversary of the US invasion mm -hmm. of Afghanistan. Bob or Saba, do you want to add to this? I, I'm just very curious about, I mean, Obama's talked about a troop withdrawal. It never happens. Um, I, I think at the time I was uh, looking forward to that happening. I was very disappointed that yeah. it didn't happen. Now I think I feel more disappointed that Biden's pushing ahead. So um, Biden's continuing, I guess, or, or he's... Yeah, Biden's doing the opposite of what Obama said he would do, and and now I'm also feeling the opposite. It's all very complicated. Yeah, do you, no, I think do you yeah. share my confusion about the emotions around this as well. I mean, I certainly do. I think um, Michigan's response was great. I mean, she, I think, has crystallized and made very clear. Yeah. So much of these very complicated recent political developments, which she's followed far closer than I have, but it seems to me that you know the the American political elite is. Um, captured by a kind of fantasy, um, you know, a victory. I think they imagine they will, you know, for a domestic audience, declare victory and they'll have the troops home and that will be commemorated. And there'll be, you know, a return to the kind of martyrology of 9-11. But as Saba and Mujan noted again and again, I mean, the, the Afghans have been left out of all this. And yeah, I think Mujan is definitely right that, I mean, there's something really important going on with this new mode of violence as a, a form of political communication of some kind. I think that Again, I'd, I'd love to hear from Mujgan and, and Saba about this, but it seems to me that the, the the Taliban think that they no longer need to negotiate, and so there are talks of there are talks about talks, but I think they recognize that this campaign of assassination is kind of priming, you know, preparing the ground for uh, a continued expansion of their control, and I think they're trying to peel away at the support for the current government, and they're targeting intellectuals, they're targeting people, they're targeting elites, they're targeting young people, they're targeting people who present an alternative to Taliban rule. Yeah. And I think that is you know, a very striking development. But I think that in a sense, I think that Blinken and, and co think that the Afghans are magically going to come to some peace agreement. And so things will be fine on September 12th. Um, the question that I have, and I don't know, I don't know how to answer this, perhaps Michigan and Sabah can, that, you know, what happens when uh, Taliban armored vehicles, which they have now, you know, captured or received from the United States somehow, roll into you know the outskirts of Kabul. I mean, I think it'll be very hard to to capture the city, but they can certainly lay siege to it. And what will happen? You know, what are the implications for civilians, for refugee flows, for a whole host of questions about the future? Um, all the major cities, um, you know, will be difficult to, to manage. But 
I think that the, the Taliban have a have a plan, and there's been a debate about to the extent that they've changed, right? Because their their rhetoric has changed, their, their propaganda has become more sophisticated. But I think that those districts that are under control of the Taliban now are seeing the practices of the 1990s return. Mm-hmm. And I think you know there are real questions about you know the, the problem of, of women's rights. I mean, you, you all have spoken very eloquently about that, but you know, it, I think it's for me personally, it's it's easy to see as a kind of colonial practice to look at the role of gender in those power relationships, but it's another thing to see this in our lifetime to see, again, you know, to noting how problematic the American role was, but to see that, um, you know, the women in these territories will, will lose when they fall to top one rule. I mean, that's going to be, and I think that the politicization of gender and the, and politicization of, of the job and so on is, you know, makes the politics more and more a focus of, of, of Taliban politics, I mean, you know, the way in which, you know, international lens, um, his focus on that, I think, is, you know, it, there is a kind of dynamic dialectic there, and the Taliban will seek to demonstrate sovereignty on the bodies of women. And I think going back, Lily, if I may, to, I'll pause on one last point. I mean, the, looking back, again, from the American angle, what went wrong, how, you know, could the war have been won at any point? I think that, again, thinking, you know, as Mujan said, as historians, and trying to imagine how the history will be written, I think when it is written, and to the extent that we have the material to understand this, I think the the crucial thread that historians will point to later would be the fact that the Americans managed to to kill uh, extraordinary numbers of Afghan civilians uh, with the political effect of withdrawing support or denying support to the government backed by the Washington and also leaving the Taliban free reign, especially in rural areas, especially in Pashtun communities, to reestablish authority. And that, that reckoning of of civilian deaths as of Vietnam. I mean, it's not something that Americans are, are good at thinking about. Um, we imagine this being, you know, what Obama called the good war. I think what we'll learn, what we'll discover down the road is that a lot of these casualties, you know, came in the hands of the Afghan National Army, but particularly of, you know, our Air Force, uh, drone strikes, um, special forces raids, in, in, in ways that we're only beginning to learn about, say, in the case of Australia. So the National Criminal Court may play a role in Afghanistan, but and it may play a role for Australia, but it, it surely won't play a role for the United States. So I think if we're thinking about lessons learned in a very kind of American-centric narrative, I think that our inability to deal with the fact of civilian casualties, and I think all this helps points about weaponry and who benefited from this. I mean, the, the, the knowledge, the expertise, the course profits all came out of the war, but I think the, the wrong lessons will have been drawn from that um, when we, you know, again, fail to recognize um, the, the value of Afghan lives. Yeah. Saba, what is the way forward? I, I really don't have an answer, I think. My view is a little Kabul-centric. Um, so just like the Soviet influence, I think American influence has been asymmetrical. Um, so some cities have benefited, some groups have benefited from American prisons. Uh, but the problem is exactly because of the benefit that they have gained, there's also a, a gap between those who have benefited and those that haven't. Uh, so some places like maybe people in Kabul are more comfortable to go to school or Herat, but then you have people in Kunar or Paktia that, you know, I've seen the Americans only through drones and soldiers and not through teachers and, and construction workers. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think it's true that the 
pullout is going to be very problematic. It's going to leave the country in, in a very difficult position. And I think then the question will become, what role will Pakistan and India play? Uh, because as I said earlier, I think they are scrambling for for allies. So I, I, I don't I don't know what the way forward is. I think convincing the Taliban to in the Taliban's allies uh, to join the government might be helpful, but that doesn't seem to be happening. It seems like as Mishkan and Bob said already, there is only violence and that's increasing. Um, so I um, yeah, I, I, don't, I really don't know what the way forward is. And for me, it's also very difficult to answer because I know uh, people in Kabul, I was talking to someone two days ago who is sponsoring some people in Kabul to go to universities, you know, and they are very upset with the American departure. And there's also talk that uh, the Americans aren't necessarily leave the big cities. They're going to have Turkey take over uh, because the idea is that, well, Turkish soldiers are Muslims, so uh, Afghans are going to be okay with that. Uh, and that's, um, and these are only some of the problems, uh, you know, uh, there's also the problem that there's right now uh, flooding in eastern provinces, there's drought in western provinces, and um, uh, we might be left without any food that is also being smuggled. Wheat is the major staple of uh, Afghan food, of what Afghans eat today, and it's being smuggled to Pakistan. Uh, which is another huge problem. Uh, so we are encountering so many problems. And I, I just, uh, even, uh, you know, some, someone told me that uh, US aid, even if it is at a drop in the ocean, it is a drop still. Uh, but I think it's a drop in certain places in Afghanistan and not all the places. Um, so I really, I, I can't tell you later what the way forward is. Um, I, want, I want to thank you so much for speaking to that. I think I want to, um, acknowledge as we're wrapping up that that you're speaking about this you and Mejgan and um, to some extent Bob as well from very personal perspectives this is not just a political situation um, in in a region that we love or study or are familiar with or have lived in or or any it's it's all of those things but we're also talking about your family your friends the people that you are in contact with on a daily basis and so I, I want to acknowledge how hard this is and not just treat this as an academic discussion. Absolutely, thank you so much Lalita for saying those words. Um, you know for me I, I just it's really shocking actually that in you know by uh, September 11th <laughs> I'm not sure I mean it's shocking that in 20 years the U.S. and its allies have not been able to really defeat the Taliban. Um, I mean, over the past two years, they've empowered them and they're handing over the government to the same exact people they sought to defeat. Yeah, uh, the, the mind really boggles. And I'm actually yeah. a little disgusted by the date. It just feels... Yeah. yeah. Either, either side would have been better, but the symbolism of that day is just, it feels absurd and obscene. 100%. Uh, I mean, that's such a traumatizing uh, ending point or starting point for all sorts of chaos to ensue. Um, yeah, I just... Um, it's also a very odd full circle, and, and, and perhaps that could be one reading of it, a real full circle to acknowledging that nothing was achieved, as you just said. You know, maybe, uh, I mean, I imagine the date is set as something of 
um, this this trying to project some kind of a victory, uh, and of course also really playing on uh, playing on American emotion around 9/11. Uh, but perhaps our reading can be that it's actually a complete acknowledgement of the total failure of this endeavor. Absolutely. I mean, speaking of failures, I don't. I you know um, again. Uh, as an Afghan living in the diaspora and following um, events uh, happening in Afghanistan as closely as I can and invested in this part of the world um, professionally and personally, um, it's paining to have to hear every single day about um, the amount of just death and violence taking place. And I just, I wanted to mention, uh, you know, I, um, I recently read about um, two young, really amazing, bright women um, who, were, uh, uh, who were killed in, in a bombing that was targeted at two minivans um, in Dashtabachi, which is a predominantly Hazara neighborhood in Kabul. Uh, ISIS claimed this attack. The two women were Fatma Mohammadi and Taiba Musavi. Um, and both of these women recently joined Afghan films. Uh, I'm a researcher who works on radio and the arts uh, and music. Uh, and uh, it, it really pained me so much when I read this story, these two young women had just recently graduated from the fine arts department at Kabul University. And they were working on animations for children. They were creating cartoons for, for children. Um, and Fatma was this really incredibly talented artist, uh, and she is she's a she was a painter, and she represented daily life in her paintings. And you know, I was looking through my Twitter feed, and her um, her fiance tweeted that they were supposed to get married soon. And I think he tweeted something like, "You know, my dear wife, you left me alone. Fatma is a martyr." And it just struck me, you know, that. The future, what's at stake here is the future. What are we going to have if we don't have these bright minds who want to recreate and push their society and build their society in positive and innovative and wonderful ways? Look at their talents. These are people creating animations for the first time in Afghanistan post 9-11. And why, why isn't that taken into, into consideration? Why is that seemed as, why is that deemed as something worthy of death and not of life? Mm -hmm. And I just continue to think about that question as I think about Afghanistan and its future. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that's actually a good point to end. I don't think there's any point us trying to reach some kind of conclusion some kind of place where we feel that we've um, achieved an understanding or, or, or anything that even seems like it's a constructive or positive. I think it's better for us and more appropriate to the situation and to the, um, the reality of life for the people of Afghanistan to, to end it right there. But I do want to give you all the opportunity just to say a, a, a final thought or something that you didn't weren't able to bring in earlier before we um, end recording. I just want to thank you, Lolita, for giving us the opportunity to uh, be able to speak uh, candidly with you about all of this. Thank, thank you so you. much.
No, not at all. Thank you for yeah. uh, for joining me. Thank you, Lolita. Thank you. Thanks, Lolita. Thanks very much for for having me and having us. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I uh, I think. Uh, the emotion I'm feeling at the end of this podcast, I imagine, is shared with uh, many of our, our listeners. Uh, and I will uh, think of maybe some ways that we can continue the conversation, be that on Twitter or maybe in a future podcast. Uh, but for now, we will end it here. Um, as always, I want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the music for the intro and the outro and Simra Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fans,